This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. When I talked to guitarist Frederick Hand recently, I was really mesmerized by the stories he could tell about his career. He has been the official guitarist for the Metropolitan Opera for almost 40 years. And wow, some of the stories he can tell. He also really had a life-changing experience writing for the soap opera As the World Turns. He'll tell you more about that and, of course, his solo career, which is what we're celebrating on his new recording. It's called Across Time, and it's featured this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Thank you, Frederick, for joining me. And yes, we are going to be talking about your new recording, but we'll talk a little bit about you so people can get to know you who maybe have missed out on the last 40 years of your career. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start off by just having you tell me how you are. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine. Um, I live in upstate New York, and it's um, I, I was born in uh, Brooklyn and lived a good deal of my life in New York City. And in my uh, mid-twenties, I got this uh, sort of primal calling to go to the country, which I had never experienced. And by the time I was in my mid-thirties, I was able to financially to do that. And so I live in uh, Woodstock, New York, in a very beautiful place. So I'm doing good. (laughs) And you have a beautiful studio there where I know some of the pieces on your recording were documented. Yes, yes. Well, actually, this is the second house that I've had in Woodstock. The studio was in the first house. It was up on a mountain. It was very isolated. And that's that was my dream then, was to have my own recording studio. But that came about uh, when I was producing music for TV. And it was at a time when things were shifting from hiring orchestras to do music to having a synthesizer and you know, two other people. And and so then one was able to produce music from their home. But as a result of having the home studio, I was able to also record my own music. And those, some of those things are uh, found their way to this album. um, And they've never been heard before, actually. Oh, really? Well, we'll talk more about that here in just a minute. I do want to talk about sort of the trajectory of your career, because you've had a really fascinating career. As you just mentioned, you've uh, done some music for TV, some for film. Uh, You were the official guitarist for the Metropolitan Opera for several years. And still am. (laughs) And you still are. I didn't know that. Well, let's start there because I'm curious if you have any interesting behind-the-scenes stories you might share with us about some of these fabulous singers that you have worked with. I I have many stories from the Met because it's uh, it's been decades that I've worked there, but one, one that comes to mind is uh, was when we did a three tenors concert, and that was done in Giant Stadium. And um, the particular songs that I were doing was with uh, Pavarotti. And when we we only had a rehearsal at the Met, 
and then a rehearsal out in Giant Stadium. And in both times, uh, Pavarotti said, I, I don't really feel like singing. <laughs> so <laughs> we never got to actually rehearse with him, which, you know, I'm sure that you know, he knew the songs great. It, but for someone like me who had never played with him before, it would have been nice, you know. So now we're in the concert and 75,000 people are there. It's a pay-per-view TV and it's worldwide transmission. And he comes out and they start the first piece. It's a Neapolitan folk song. And the maestro, who is James Levine, starts it. And it turns out that the guitar was the only instrument that had moving notes so that that set the tempo. Now, I'm not sure why this happened, but either uh, Pavarotti couldn't hear the guitar or he just decided he didn't like the tempo. But he started to sing at a slower tempo. And this moment of panic, here we are, and it comes down to this the guitar player <laughs> to make a decision whether to follow the conductor or to follow the most famous singer in the world. And I remember all these things rushing through my head like, why me? <laughs> And you know, it was all happening in a nanosecond, and I decided to follow uh, Pavarotti, and, and then everything came into place. And I thought, did I imagine this? Or, so I watched uh, the, uh, when they broadcast it on, um, on TV, I watched it, and sure enough, that happened. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, why you? That is, that exactly. is a terrifying story. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> For a sole musician there with Pavarotti, oh my gosh. Well, early on in your life, you were a Fulbright scholar, and that's how you ended up in England as a student of Julian Bream's. And I would love for you to share maybe a reflection or some reflections about what that was like studying with him and what, what was most memorable for you. Yeah, obviously, uh, it had to be a great experience studying with uh, arguably the greatest musician who ever played the guitar, you know. Uh, and he was my idol from the time I was about 15 onwards because I started playing the guitar because of Segovia. And I, I was all things Segovia until 15. And then with all due respect to Segovia, my attention shifted to this new person on the scene who was playing the lute and who was playing modern music and creating a whole other repertoire. And uh, I first had the opportunity of studying with Julian Bream in Canada at a master class in Stratford, Ontario. And then a few years later, I got the Fulbright to study with him in England. And of course, in the, in the obvious ways, it was a, an incredible experience. And at that time, I was on track to be a solo concert classical guitarist. But it was also a bit of an identity crisis because I'm sitting there with the greatest guitarist in the world and I'm hearing the most beautiful music and up till now my thoughts have been to imitate this and to go in this path but because of earlier experiences studying jazz uh, with folk music other influences in my life there was sort of like almost like a tree growing inside of me that had to come out and express itself and when I was uh, studying with Julian Bramer, I was thinking, well, what do I have to contribute that's unique to me, that's not just following in the footsteps? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I felt that there was something wanting to come out. And so those two things were happening. It was both an incredible, wonderful experience and also upsetting because <laughs> I was going through a bit of an identity crisis. And as soon as I uh, got back from England, I made a recording in which one half of it was jazz. I hired a jazz, a phenomenal jazz group. And the other half was classical guitar. And it was called Double Exposure. 
And I took it to a record producer and he said, well, this is all very nice, but we have no idea what bin to put this in. And if you could combine the two, then you'd really have something. And at the time, I didn't uh, relate to that because I didn't want to do something that was uh, superficial just to try to, you know, uh, somehow merge. But I was also from a pretty early age interested in early music, meaning Renaissance and medieval music. And that started when I got a call uh, when I was still in college from Joseph Papp's office uh, to do Shakespeare in the Park. And they asked me if I, uh, I could play the lute as a warm-up to the to the shows. And I said, well, yes, of course. Actually, I never played the lute, didn't have a lute, and had no idea what I was going to do. But you don't say no to that. And uh, from that experience of playing the lute and playing, you know, uh, in that kind of setting, I realized that this was also a, a career path and something I was genuinely interested in. So I started working with early music groups, great groups like the Waverly Consort and Calliope. And it occurred to me that the old, the further back you go with music uh, into the medieval times, the more modal it is, the less harmonic it is. And as a composer, it was speaking to me to add my own harmonies and to do sort of my own thing with it. And that led this identity crisis, like when I was about 25, led five years later to the creation of a group called Jazz Antiqua. And that was a, a true merging. Uh, and I should explain why that happened. When I started working with these early music groups, they would say, well, we don't actually have a loop part, but we have a bass line we're going to give you. And you just improvise, you'll hear the harmonies and you'll improvise over it and occasionally you take a solo. And I thought, that's identical to the concept of jazz. It's just a completely different musical language. But uh, in, in doing that, I thought, well, here we go. I, I'm, I'm getting this all this beautiful material and it's modal. And I'm thinking of John Coltrane and McCoy Tyner and all these great jazz players who they're in my head already. And um, Jazz Antiqua then was where I was able to take the uh, old material and not just jazz it up. That was not the aim. The idea was to create new compositions with pockets of improvisation, not everybody playing the same, uh, off the same uh, harmonies, and uh, create a whole new type of uh, musical genre and um, way, of, way of improvising. I interviewed Ron McFarlane not too long ago, and he was describing to me his first experience with a lute, being a guitarist. And he said it was just literally like, it was comical. And I'm curious what your first experience was like when you were used to the guitar, and now you have a lute in your lap, which is bigger rounder it doesn't just right. kind of nestle in describe right. what that experience was like and how you <laughs> how it found a home within your sure. body well the, I, I the interesting thing about being rounder is just how do you hold on to this thing because it wants to you know slip away and you kind of have to use your right arm to kind of push it into your body but as i had mentioned I was panicked when I got that first call to play the lute. So when I borrowed the lute, I took off all the lute strings and I put guitar strings on and tuned it like a guitar. So I was really cheating that first year. However, soon as, as soon as that gig was over, 
I uh, strung it like a lute and I learned to play the lute. And, you know, there was really an adjustment. And by the way, I'm a big fan of Ron McFarrow and I think he's absolutely wonderful. Uh, there was a big adjustment because um, the lute is really, uh, so I'm told, not, it was not designed to be played with fingernails. And all classical guitarists now, it didn't used to be the case, but pretty much now all classical guitarists use fingernails. So in terms of the sound, it's a bit tricky because also the lute has double strings. So one has to come to some kind of accommodation with that. But I had as a great example, Julian Bream, who's a guitarist playing with fingernails, and it just became another way you know, to play the lute. And, and it was, believe it or not, in the world of early music, a big controversy. <laughs> I can't imagine why, how there could be a controversy it was, but whether to play with nails or without nails. Um, by the way, without nails eventually won. <laughs> Frederick, you have a new recording out. It's called Across Time, and it literally is celebrating 40 years of your career. Talk a little bit about what we're hearing kind of in general, and then we'll dive into some of the individual pieces as well. Sure. So, well, it, it is really right about 40 years ago, I did a recording called Trilogy, and it was all original compositions. And that was the first time that in my compositions I used jazz harmonies and jazz rhythms, and it was very much influenced at the time by three jazz artists. Dave Brubeck, if you remember, uh, you know, uh, all of his pieces with 5-8 and 7-8 and just, so it was very heavily influenced by that, uh, by the master jazz pianist, Bill Evans, who actually studied uh, the same place I did at the Manus College of Music, where I taught for almost 50 years. And uh, Bill Evans studied at Manus, Ravel and Debussy, and you hear that in his piano playing. You hear the harmonies there. So that was a big influence. And also the uh, music of uh, Chick Corea and actually four artists, and Keith Jarrett, two, uh, two other pianists. So I was really more influenced um, in my composition by pianists than guitarists. What I was trying to do really was create some of what they created on the piano, uh, on the guitar. They were able to play in two different keys because they would have their left hand playing in one key and the right hand playing the other. So I, I, I found ways to do things like that. I think what happens uh, if things are going well when you're writing is that you get into a certain flow and ideas come to you and you're not trying to manipulate the music, or you're not consciously trying to put jazz with classical or anything like that. It's coming through you, and I really feel that way. It's coming through you. You're not creating it. Uh, and you're connecting with something larger than yourself. I mean, it's a very spiritual thing, and I've talked with painters and dancers and poets, and, and, and universally, this seems to be the experience at its best when you're creating you feel like you're connecting with something bigger than yourself. And so that, that was what was happening. And I felt that because the vehicle was me and I personally am interested in jazz and classical, that's how it expressed itself. That's how the musical energy came out. But I wasn't trying to do that. I think it was just 
you know, for the longest time I had this idea in my head that, oh, you can't mix those two. You can't, you know, you've got classical composers. It's very, this is serious stuff, you know? When I was uh, early on, when I was trying to decide which way to go in terms of jazz or classical, I would go hear Bill Evans uh, at these clubs. And I mean, he, it was phenomenal music, but people were drinking and ordering meals and, you know, and I thought, what? This is wrong, you know, in terms of being respectful for the music. Whereas, you know, classical, you, you sit in a concert hall and everyone is quiet. And so this sort of created a division in my mind of these, of these two different worlds. And with Trilogy, all of that just uh, went away. I just said, just write, you know, just let it happen. Don't try to make it classical. Don't try to make it jazz. And that's, that was the result of that. So, so Trilogy was um, the beginning of this uh, really, really solidifying my, my style, you might say. And Trilogy lived on vinyl records, and when uh, the digital age came, it went away. And so I was able to get the masters and have it digitally remastered. So that is, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say, being reintroduced to a, a several other generations. And then there are also... Uh, three new pieces written in the first uh, couple of years of the pandemic, recently written and recorded, and they really do reflect us being in a pandemic in terms of the feelings about that, especially the first piece, which is called Renewal. I also had three songs that I had recorded with my, my wife with texts by Shakespeare and uh, Italian philosopher Chino. There is a that shines in everything Each part has a of its own And those were done in my home studio and they haven't seen the light of day until now so I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. And these are pieces that were recorded in the mid-1990s and are just being heard for the first time on a recording. Why? Why is that? Well, I did not record them for a particular project. Actually, that's not true, I should say. I was part of a, um, I, that, I, not a recording project, but I was part of a group in New York City uh, that was uh, part of a, a school for practical philosophy. And we were given an assignment to look at these texts, and then create music without any thought. In other words, without any internal dialogue about what do these poems mean or anything. Just read them and then um, compose. And I did that, and uh, Leslie uh, had the perfect voice for them, so we recorded them. But my recordings at that time were with either my solo guitar music or with jazz antique or with other instruments. And there was just never a project where it seemed you know, write for those songs. And then I realized uh, with this last recording that if not now, when? You know, so that's why it took so long to get them out. The one that really strikes me is called I Am, based on a poem that uh, many of us know as Do Not Stand at My Grave and Weep. Do not stand at my grave and weep. And it's 
it's about immortality, and I thought, wow, that's also very... It's very appropriate given what a lot of people have been through, most of us, in the last two years, and how many lives have been lost. And I wondered if that in any way influenced why you chose to put it on this recording right now. I would say certainly. I I think we all have that somewhere on our minds uh, about mortality, but also uh, about the identification. I mean, we identify as these physical bodies that die, but in, in the poem, the identification is with the winds and the birds and the, the things that, are, that we will join, that we are a part of r- right now. That's what I think so beautiful about and compelling about the poem. The opening piece is a new one. It's called Renewal, and it reflects a gamut of emotions. And it, too, is kind of reflecting what a lot of us were experiencing, especially during the early part of the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about how that's reflected in the music? Yes, yes. So the the music starts off kind of contemplative with uh, using harmonics, which are very delicate. And then uh, it goes into a kind of a, a samba that has a bit of a, an edge on it. You know, there was a time, especially when the when the vaccines first came out, uh, I don't know, this was like a year and a half into the pandemic, and it just seemed like a big ray of light was coming in, you know. And so there was this hope, and that hope is expressed in the music with a very joyful jazz waltz. You know, and then the piece ends with more contemplative with the return of these harmonics. So that's musically the representation, you know, of what I was feeling. If I were to write it now, I don't know, (laughs) I'm not quite sure what I would write because it's so confusing. You know, some people have said, well, the pandemic's over. Well, not according to the statistics, but, you know, that's the way the behavior is right now. So it's a bit, it really is confusing for a lot of people. There's a ballad for Astor Piazzolla, which was inspired by someone you were mentoring. Can you talk a little bit about how maybe he inspired you to write this piece? Yes, uh, his name is Federico Diaz, and he's a brilliant Argentine guitarist who was studying at uh, the City University of New York Graduate Center, and I was his teacher for two years. And he's a Piazzolla specialist, and he uh, devoted his doctorate to the music of Piazzolla. And he told me at the end, the very end of his uh, stay there, he wanted to do a concert, of course, of music of Piazzolla, but also people who were influenced by Piazzolla. If we could, he could ask people to create some new music. 
and I very much was influenced by Piazzolla. So, uh, and as I was writing it, I was inspired, first of all, by my student, who's, who's wonderful, but also by Piazzolla's work. I found part of me sort of channeling my inner Piazzolla, you know, and the piece has a, a distinctly Latin flavor at times. how that piece came about really as a request to to reflect on Piazzolla's music which I did and that was really uh, the impetus for creating the work. The Passionate Pilgrim is a work you were commissioned to write as a wedding gift. Talk a little bit about this piece and how it's sort of transformed since you originally wrote it. So this was a commission piece uh, by the, the bride uh, of a couple that were about to get married a pretty long time ago, decades ago. And for whatever reason, I, I know not, she, I think she loves Shakespeare though, and um, The Passionate Pilgrims actually refers to a group of poems and other works collected by Shakespeare, written by Shakespeare and some and the others that he collected. And so uh, I wrote it for the lute, and that was kind of the end of it. And then at a certain point it hit me, you know, I should really uh, do something for guitar because no one's gonna no one's going to play this piece on the lute. But I didn't. I didn't. Until many years later, her husband uh, is a guitarist, and he asked me to arrange it for guitar. Now we're talking about just in the last, uh, like, a year ago. And as I started to play it, now I'm looking at my work from, from many years ago, and it's like, oh, why did I do that? I could do this instead. I, so I, I can't help myself. I have to change it, right? So... A lot of it stayed the same, but a lot of it changed. Uh, not only did it become more uh, guitar friendly, but also there were possibilities on the guitar that didn't exist on the lute, especially to play way up high. And so it, uh, I'd say about at least 50% of it stayed and, and the rest uh, changed. And But I used as a model initially a work by the great uh, Elizabethan composer, John Dowland. And he wrote a piece called As I Went to Walsingham. And it, I used to play it, and it stuck in my head. And that's kind of the feel of the piece. And in those days, they, they wrote their term for uh, variations were divisions. They said theme and, and divisions. And so I wrote this theme, and uh, I'd say about three divisions on it. And um, it's very much, I, I think you, when you listen to it, you hear the Elizabethan influence, and yet it has modern harmonies. is a romantic etude on this recording, and you've said that it's unlike any other music you've written. Can you explain that? Yes, it's, it's, it's when I say it's a romantic etude, I mean it's from the romantic period. I've never written in that style, and I've never uh, wanted to. It just seemed like, well, why would you do that? I'm not... Uh, <laughs> You know, 20th and now 21st century guy, you know. But 
it came out. And, you know, I, I, when I titled it, I felt it was a, a romantic style. Actually, I realize now that that is, as I was inspired, uh, not knowing so, but by the work of Antonio Lauro, who's a brilliant Venezuelan composer, and I played his works. And it's very much in that style of a Venezuelan waltz. But a lot of the Latino music and Spanish music is romantic in its style, very melodic and gorgeous harmonies. And it's not something I intentionally uh, set out to do, but it just poured out of me. And it does have a really comforting, nostalgic feel to it, too. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a nostalgic kind of guy. The music of the French Impressionist, Maurice Ravel, has had a profound impact on your musical development, and that's one of the reasons that you wrote a piece called A Waltz for Maurice. Yes, well, if I were to pick a period of music that I would say, it's hard to pick, really. I was going to say it would be the Impressionistic period. Then I thought of Bach, and I said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you can't. But in terms of composition, modern composition, and, you know, I really suffered uh, in terms of relating more to Impressionism. When I was in college, I wanted to study composition, but I knew that at, at that time uh, I would not be taken seriously because it had to be not only modern if you wanted to be a serious student, but literally at that time, and this was the late 60s, cacophonic. I mean, really, without melody, without harmony, without any of the tradition, it had to be novel. That was the criterion back then. That's changed, uh, but, but then I, I didn't feel that uh, I had a valid outlet you know, for my music. And so I didn't study, but I was so deeply affected by the work of both Debussy and Ravel, but in particular Ravel. I would say in terms of composers influencing the way that I voice chords on the guitar, it's Ravel. I'm, I'm trying to imitate Ravel. I, I said before Bill Evans, but Bill Evans is coming out of the tradition of Ravel. American composer Aaron Copland inspired you early in your career, and that's one reason that you included your arrangement of the Shaker Melody Simple Gifts on this recording. Talk a little bit about this arrangement, please. Sure. Well, Appalachian Spring, again, I can't pick a favorite piece of music, but it has to, that has to be up there in the top five, let's say. I, in both the, the full orchestral version, and then later on I found out the smaller chamber music version. And, um, and again, Copland is uh, in terms of American 20th century composers right at the top of my list. Copeland and Bernstein and Samuel Barber. So Simple Gifts, when I heard it in Appalachian Spring, I said, oh, I wish I could play something like that on the guitar. And, and that was my initial impression of what I heard that melody in Appalachian Spring is what I did on the guitar, but I didn't use Copeland's harmonies. I said, nor could I, I, I wish I could. Thank you. 
So um, that's that's very much reflected. Though when you listen to the arrangement of it, it really is coming straight out of Copeland. And I don't mind saying that. If you're going to copy someone, Copeland's not a bad guy to copy. Well, I would love to hear more about Cooper Lake because it was inspired by a beautiful walk in the woods and we could all use that on a regular basis. that when I was uh, in my 20s I had this yearning to get out into the countryside and one of the most beautiful spots that people go to to take a walk in in the Woodstock area is called Cooper Lake which is actually a reservoir for uh, the Kingston area and um, interestingly when I when I uh, went to put this album together I thought oh it would be great to get a, a photo of Cooper Lake and I was asking I was going on the internet and looking for images and then uh, this photographer friend of mine says, look on your phone. If you walk at Cooper Lake, there's no way you didn't take pictures. And I found the most beautiful picture on my phone of Cooper Lake that I used for the album uh, in the pamphlet from, from a couple of years ago. But Cooper Lake, the thing that makes, uh, I think, it a little different in terms of a uh, classical guitar album is I recorded it on a steel string guitar. This was another one of those pieces. I was in my home studio, and when I used to do work for TV, a steel string guitar is a very uh, useful uh, instrument. And when I pick up a steel string guitar, I just play differently. I play more idiomatic um, kinds of things, like a la maybe James Taylor. And uh, this was a piece that that just naturally came from uh, being in the countryside and being in areas of beauty. It's very tranquil. And the interesting thing about it was that uh, in terms of recording it is that I had the window open and uh, there were these cicadas that were right outside and all of that got on the, on the track and when it came time to put it on the album my engineer friend uh, said, oh, I think that's really cool, you know, cicadas. And after a while, I just couldn't stand the idea of anything interfering with the music. And, you know, these days they can take, pretty much take anything out if it's not within the frequency of, of the guitar. But every now and then, you hear a couple of cicadas in this piece. But the steel string guitar is, for me, what made it so special was that it has so much sustain so you would play a note and you wouldn't even want to move, you know, you just love listening to the sound and letting the, the sound decay. And that to me, it captured the beauty of Cooper Lake. Out of all the things that you have accomplished so far, Frederick, what was perhaps most unexpected? Wow, that's a great question. I think so, th there were many things that were unexpected. Certainly uh, the whole career writing music for television, and in particular five different soap operas, that was something I could never anticipate or expect. 
but it was um, deeply fulfilling. And the way that that came about was I was called, I did a lot of session work in New York City, and I was called to play uh, three hours of Spanish guitar music for As the World Turns. And I, of course, said yes, as I did when I was asked to play the lute. And the only problem there was I only had about 20 minutes of, of uh, Spanish guitar music in my repertoire. But I knew I could improvise, and I did. And that led to them calling me to do another three-hour session. And then after that, I wa wanted very much to continue. Uh, and I said to the producers, I'd love to play some other things. And they said, well, sure, go ahead. Send us a, a love theme. And I did. And then they said, uh, oh, we, this is very nice. Let's do eight variations of this for full orchestra next week. And again, I said, yes, yes, of course. I've never written for orchestra. I don't know how to. Uh, but uh, there are people that do know how, and I work with them. And that led to a 15-year career uh, writing music for uh, these shows. And it was, a, it was a wonderful experience, completely out of the uh, trajectory that I, I saw for myself. But uh, it enabled me to uh, earn a living, build a house, um, and have a recording studio. And it took me in a whole other direction, which was great. Absolutely. And I was a huge fan of As the World Turns growing up. That was one of the few soap operas my mother actually watched. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, if you, I, you may recall that Meg Ryan and Marissa Tomei and Julianne Moore were all on those shows. And I, one of the things that I did was I created the music for all of the uh, uh, live weddings that they did, on-camera on weddings. And I was in the band, and I was playing in the ceremony. And so I played all of their weddings, which is really fun. I didn't remember Meg Ryan was on soap operas. Wow. Oh, she was a big star on As the World Turns, so much so that when she decided that she wanted to leave the show to do movies, they... And I, I played the wedding on the show, and then at the end of the episode, they killed her off. They literally killed her off. But the fans were so um, angry about that because they loved her that they literally brought her back in the form of a, a new actress, you know. And how do you do that? You know, how can you bring someone back who you've killed off? Well, it turns out in this car crash in which she died, she was thrown uh, away from the vehicle. And she somehow survived, but she was badly um, injured, and she had to have plastic surgery, and hence the character continued on. But that, that, uh, that, that was remarkable to me that they could actually, once they killed her off, bring her back. The other theme that I've been hearing as we've been talking is you have said yes to a lot of things that then you thought, hmm, I better figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would say I, that's advice that I would give to a young musician. Uh, say yes. Now, it doesn't always turn out that you can figure it out. You can always then call back and say, you know, I was mistaken. But saying yes is, is really a great motivator to, to figuring it out. I, I have been called, let's say, by the Metropolitan Opera for, to play uh, operas that don't have the guitar. They had... Uh, a Russian instrument called the domra. And they said, so we have this opera for the domra. It was called The Nose by Shostakovich. And uh, do you play the domra? And I said, yes, yes, I do play the domra. I just have one question. What is a domra? Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> that, that, that's my, you know, that, that's my advice to you. You know, you can figure it out uh, pretty quick. 
or not. And if not, you just say, I made a mistake. Uh, here's somebody that can do it. Someone else can do it. But I, I found uh, that more often than not, there was a way to, to make it happen. And that's why I think a big reason why I've had these uh, very varied experiences outside of just the uh, classical guitar soloist concert artist. I'm thinking about you celebrating four decades of your career, and I'm guessing that some budding young guitarists might be very curious about your practice routine and any little bits of inspiration you might have, uh, you know, because quite frankly, it's not easy to learn how to practice. No, it isn't. Uh, you know, uh, as far as practice goes, I have to make a confession that these days I'm composing and I play the guitar every day for hours a day composing and because of that uh, I don't as they say uh, lose my chops you know I still have my chops and can play but I don't actually practice any more practice scales and arpeggios and all that it's, it's under my fingers so in that sense I think I would be a bad influence for uh, you know younger guitarists but I, I would tell them absolutely uh, to to practice those things uh, within within certain limits, and I say that because it's very easy to get into a routine and keep that routine going, and it's no longer useful. That is to say, it would be uh, great to freshen things up. But if I had to uh, talk a bit about uh, words of inspiration for young guitarists, it wouldn't be in their practice routine as much as it would be what we had talked about earlier, about finding yourself, that thing within you that, that you feel is unique and that uh, when you play music, that that comes out, that you allow that to come out and, and join the music, whether it be interpreting a piece or improvising or creating your own compositions. It's going to that place where you feel it's, uh, the music is just an embodiment of, of uh, your emotions and your soul. Frederick Hand and his new recording celebrating his 40-year career. It's called Across Time. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for New Classical Tracks. This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher.